today on Ag News Daily. If you've got 90% of your workforce that you know is foreign born, yet you don't have access to a visa program to procure them in country, it gives you a fairly good idea of the legal status of the majority of your workforce. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and happy Wednesday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. I'm Dawson Schmidt, joined by Ashton Carr today. Ashton, it's been a little bit since we talked. Uh, we both started school this week, so I'm kind of curious on how things are going for you on that. Things are going really well. I only have one class that's in person. It's a Monday, Wednesday, Friday class just from noon to one. So not a whole lot going on, really. I My other class is an asynchronous class that I just do by myself online. So honestly, not a whole lot going on in, in my realm. I have to do my internship hours for grad school this semester as well. So a lot of research that I'm having to do in grad school. It's really kicking off this semester, but I'm enjoying it so far. What about you, Dawson? I'm enjoying it so far too, trying to get back in the swing of things. We have a lot of you know, syllabus days, of course, but then also trying to get back into club work as well. So I've been a little busy this week. So I'm curious to see on how things are going to go with trying to balance everything out as the semester progresses. Well, Dawson, I am excited for the semester as well. We also get football and tailgates this year. So I'm really hoping that things continue um, to go semi well, at least, you know, talking about COVID and all of those things that we don't get shut back down again. I've said it before on the podcast that I don't think that Texas is going to be doing that just because our governor has already instated a couple of different things when it comes to COVID. So I don't anticipate at least Texas being shut back down or anything like that. But I'm going to just go ahead and kick things off with some news today because I've got quite a few stories, a little bit more than normal to share today. And I'm going to go ahead and start things off in Brazil. You know, their soybean crop isn't in the ground yet, but a market analyst says that the slightest possibility of another La Nina weather pattern in Brazil will be a market mover. Chris Trant with Hedge Point Global Markets says that despite last year's La Nina, Brazil completed harvest with record high yields and production but might not get lucky twice if La Nina brings another dry season. He said that the global balance sheet needs to have a record Brazilian crop. The balance sheet is so tight that any significant loss of yield would send prices sharply higher, limiting end-user demand and limiting trade. Therefore, he says it will only take a slight yield reduction for prices to skyrocket. Before we started talking here, Dawson, I know you said that you haven't been watching markets as closely this week as you know we, we've both been in school, so I haven't really been looking a whole lot either. But I, I find this super interesting. Like I said, you know, that soybean crop isn't even in the ground yet, but I'm definitely going to keep my eyes out on this La Nina weather pattern if it does hit Brazil and, you know, what this is going to mean globally from a, a market standpoint. For sure. And that's definitely something that we're watching here closely at Trader PhD as well. But trying to keep on the eyes of weather, uh, many people might have seen that a large thunderstorm swept across the Midwest this uh, yesterday that left many houses and towns without power. It also swept through and damaged a lot of corn. I saw many different pictures and videos um, from people back in my home hometown area as I'm no longer there right now. So I just kind of checked in on people. And so they're seeing a lot of damage to cornfields. If some people did not get their stocks all the way knocked down, they're at least 
you know, pretty bent over a lot of flattened uh, corn and soybean fields, and then some damage to some grain bins and other uh, livestock facilities as well. And so, you know, just mixed in with a lot of the drought issues that we've had up in the Midwest, as well as, you know, some other storms that pass through that just keeps adding to it on how people are really, you know, kind of concerned about how their crop is going to end up this year. And so those that got lucky so far, unfortunately, have got a little bit of a blow from this last storm. Well, Dawson, I don't have anything weather related, but I do still have some international news that I wanted to share. And this time it is coming from the Philippines. Earlier today, they announced that they had approved the commercial propagation of genetically modified golden rice after more than a decade of field tests that drew strong opposition from anti-GMO activists. The Philippines is, of course, one of the world's biggest rice importers, and is the first nation to approve the vitamin A enriched grain for planting, according to the Philippines-based International Rice Research Institute, which helped to develop golden rice. Formal biosafety approval was issued last month. The Department of Agriculture and its attached agency, Philippine Rice Research Institute, said earlier today. The Philippines have been expected to approve the widespread planting of golden rice as early as 2011, but faced public concerns over health risks and opposition from various sectors of the industry. And I um, am pretty excited for this. I have voiced before that I'm kind of an advocate, I would say, you know, maybe not super intensely, but I definitely support GM crops. And I think that it's interesting um, to see some of these nations adopt new practices and start incorporating GMOs and GM products. So I think this is kind of a win here, I would say. For sure, Ashton. Kind of kicking things over to the USDA, the agency released a new document on Tuesday outlining that it will regulate livestock markets under the Packers and Stockyards Act, which celebrated its centennial a couple of weeks ago. The Biden administration pushed the legislation in an executive order to promote more competition in the American economy. The USDA outlined more information for its frequently asked questions on how it plans to enforce, quote, undue and unreasonable preferences under the act's authority. In a press release, the USDA says it plans to use every weapon in its arsenal to ensure that growers and producers are protected from harm. The USDA said the proposed rules would strengthen the agency's enforcement of unfair and deceptive practices and undue preferences and addresses the poultry growers tournament system and makes it easier for the USDA to bring enforcement actions under the act. The latest enforcement policy allows the USDA's July announcement of three proposed rules for the Packers and Stockyards Act that the agency says it will make it easier to regulate markets under the act. Some of the guidelines the USDA provides in its facts page regarding the act are around deception and manipulation between cash negotiated markets and formula contracts and cattle, and when a grower faces potential deception in the provisions of inputs for for poultry growing, and around refusal to engage in cash negotiated transactions if the packer is treating the producer differently from others, including where producers can meet terms of delivery cooperatively. So that's just kind of adding on more to the latest announcements that uh, Secretary Vilsack gave last month, as well as President Biden's executive order as well. Well, Dawson, I'm glad that you are staying on top of that and informing our listeners as I am also learning. I didn't see that today. So I'm glad that you were on top of it and got to share that with us. 
I have a follow-up from, I believe it was last week that I shared this bit of news about chlorpyrifos, and I have some more news coming from that as president and CEO of the Ag Retailers Association says he's concerned that the recent chlorpyrifos decision could set a dangerous precedent. Darren Kopak says the change didn't go through the normal pesticide regulation process under the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act. He was quoted as saying, now this is kind of um, a mouthful, but I, I think that it's interesting to take note of, but he said that what EPA has done instead is they've canceled food use tolerances, which is under a totally different statute and doesn't require any kind of public note or comment. Technically, the product is still registered under the FIFRA, but if you apply it and there is some kind of residue of that product on the food crop afterwards, that food crop can't be sold because it's in violation of the tolerance, which is zero. It represents an end run around the pesticide statutes that are supposed to regulate those decisions under FIFRA. The court and environmentalists have now found a way to end run around the statute. And if this is the platform for how we're going to regulate these products in the future, we have a huge problem. And again, that's coming from President and CTO of ARA, Dan Kopak. He also added and told Brownfield Ag News that the same groups have already said, quote, well, if we're going to ban chlorpyrifos, we should ban organophosphates for the same reason. They're going to build on that platform and eventually go after every crop protection product they can find and essentially regulate them off the market through the court. The EPA has announced that it's going to ban the use of chlorpyrifos on all food crops grown in the U.S. And last week, the EPA issued a final rule revoking all tolerances, which established the amounts of the pesticide allowed on food. The agency says that it will also issue notice of intent to cancel all registered food uses under the FIFRA. So I think that this case is definitely interesting and to keep our eyes out on this, see if the EPA comes back and says anything else in addition to this. But I just thought that uh, Kopak's initial words on this was certainly interesting and one to take note of. Well, Ashton, one more bit of piece of news that I have comes from the USDA once again with the food price outlook report that was released today um, for August. So food inflation prices were seen at three, 3 to 4% year over year versus 25 to 3.5% in the last report with pork prices ranging from 5 to 6% versus 4 to 5%. And the beef price raised to a range of 4 to 5% versus 3 to 4%. And the USDA sees price slowing to a pace of 2 to 3% range in hopefully the next year. And so that just adds to a little bit of our topic on, you know, price inflation that we keep seeing. Um, there's a lot of different things, you know, others outside of the commodity markets that are kind of putting people on edge and how much we're going to see prices range uh, raise here in the next couple of months or the next year. Well, Dawson, I'm all out of news myself. How about we go ahead and hop into the markets here? I say we get right into them and for not being able to watch the markets or not watching the markets too closely this last week, um, still seeing a lot of price action as you got from Bellini's commentary the last couple of days, but uh, grains headed a little bit higher today um, with a little bit of mixed action as well, but getting right into it, the September corn contract rose six and three quarters to close at 551 and a quarter and the December closed six 
and a half cents higher at 551 and three quarters. On to soybeans, September, the September contract closed nine cents higher at 1346 even, and the November closed a cent higher at 1332 and three quarters. On to the wheat complex, a lot of weakness. We saw September, September wheat closed six and three quarter cents lower at seven eleven and a quarter. The December down six and three quarter cents to close at seven twenty-five and a half. Heading over to livestock, we're seeing a lot of weakness as well with the October contract closing a dollar forty lower at one thirty thirty. The December down one twelve and a half at to close at one thirty-six twenty-seven and a half. On to feeder cattle, the September contract also closing lower by 62 cents at 165.15. The October down 95 cents to close at 169.27. On to lean hogs, a little bit more, a little bit more strength in the market today with the October contract closing a dollar 77 higher at 88.75. The December up a dollar 17 and a half to close at 81.95. Rounding out our markets today with the class three dairy milk features, the September down three cents to close at 1335, the October down nine cents to close at 1720. Well, with that, Dawson, let's go ahead and kick it over to one of our Ag Labor mini series episodes talking to Rick Nairabout. Well, today we are talking to the CEO of the Idaho. Dairy Men's Association, Rick Narabout. Rick, thank you so much for coming on and talking about ag labor with us. Yeah, thank you for having us. So I know I said that we're talking about ag labor and that's part of our mini series, but today we're specifically talking about the dairy industry, obviously. Um, but before we get into that, Rick, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved with Idaho Dairy Men's? Sure. So, so I've spent most of my life in the, in the dairy industry, grew up on a small uh, family operation in, in Michigan. And so grew up uh, in production agriculture in the dairy industry. And uh, once it's in your blood, it's really hard to, uh, to, to get out of the industry and uh, have moved westward uh, in my career. And uh, about 20 years ago, I uh, found my way moving up to Twin Falls, Idaho to, to help manage Idaho Dairymen's Association and uh, worked my way up through the through the ranks there and took over as CEO uh, a few years ago. So. so Rick, you obviously have a pretty in-depth knowledge of the dairy industry there in Idaho. And just for our listeners to gain some perspective, tell us a little bit about the makeup of the dairy industry in Idaho. So, so the dairy industry in Idaho is uh, from in Western standards, it's pretty normal in terms of average herd size. We're about 1,800 cows per dairy. Uh, in total, we've got about 400 dairy farms in the state, uh, 300 dairy farm families. So, there's a number of families that own uh, multiple facilities. So, 300 dairy families uh, in the state that we work for. And uh, again, by some comparisons, it's a pretty high, uh, pretty high average herd size. But by Western comparisons, it's it's pretty typical of what we see in terms of average herd sizes across the West. So, um, an industry that's uh, consolidating due to pressures like labor and others, uh, we we do see continued consolidation. I don't know that there's anything that'll uh, that'll stop that process, uh, but still. Uh, what I like to tell people is it doesn't matter if I'm at Kelly's uh, coffee shop in McBain, Michigan, where I grew up, uh, talking with farmers there, or if I'm in Choets in Jerome, Idaho, 
the conversations are a lot the same. The people are a lot the same. They just milk more cows in Jerome, Idaho than they do in McBain, Michigan. So you talk about consolidation there, and I think that we'll dive a little bit into that here in a moment, but I have a, a quick question concerning H-2A visas, because I know that for the dairy industry that you can't use um, H-2A programs to fill the jobs that you guys are, are looking for with this labor shortage. So can we just dive into that a little bit and kind of how that is maybe hurting the dairy industry right now as we are still looking to fill these roles? Yeah, so so any ag employer that has a year-round position, uh, so one that is not seasonal or temporary like uh, row crop positions would be, uh, they, they are prohibited from using the H-2A program to bring workers into country to fill those, those year-round uh, continuous positions. So the majority of our positions on the dairy are going are gonna to be year-round positions. So we don't have access to a visa program like the H-2A to be able to bring workers in country. And in, in, in Idaho, our demographics of our workforce, uh, you know, we know that about 90% of our workers are, are foreign born. And if you've got 90% of your workforce that you know is foreign born, yet you don't have access to a, a visa program to procure them in country, it gives you a fairly good idea of the legal status of the majority of your workforce. And, and that's kind of a wide open lay of the land in, in Idaho here. And, and honestly, it's it's not going to be all that different in the other Western states where we're very dependent on a non-family workforce to to get the job done. So we we look like the rest of the West and, and like a, a number of other industries, you know, hospitality, landscaping, um, all, all sorts of industries are in the same position we are in terms of the reliance on this workforce. So Rick, when you talk about a workforce, the reason actually that we reached out to you in general was because you were recently quoted in an RFD TV article talking about ag labor reform that needs to happen soon. And we'll touch on that here in a moment. But I wanted to touch on first just this surprising number, I guess, that in Idaho, in Idaho workers are paid nearly $15 an hour. Does that seem to be a good point to attract folks to come work? Or do you think that that still needs to be raised? So, so fifteen dollars an hour would be a starting point. That'd be entry wages for a milker position on on a typical dairy in Idaho, and the pay scale just goes up from there. Um, you know, for, for us, the the adverse wage rate that is being discussed or is part of the H two A program um, within immigration reform conversations and within the Farm Workforce Modernization Act legislation that passed the House it would bring uh, year-round employers like our dairymen into the H-2A program. And some in agriculture uh, ha have issue with that adverse wage rate and the, the, the level that it's at today. But within the dairy industry, we're already paying those wages plus some. So for us, that's not the sticking point. It might be for other ag employers as we look at expansion of the H-2A program to include industries like, uh, like the dairy industry. And so really, Rick, bigger picture here, you know, you call out that ag labor reform needs to happen soon. And that's definitely been an ongoing issue in Congress for multiple administrations now is to try and fix this and resolve this issue. In your mind, how do we go about doing that? So it, it's got to be bipartisan. And that's been our attempts with Farm Workforce Modernization Act. Uh, we had Congressman Simpson 
and others in the Republican Party reaching across the aisle to individuals like Zoe Lofgren uh, from California to try and find that bipartisan compromise. And, and that piece of legislation is a good piece of legislation. Um, it was compromised. Nobody got everything that they wanted within it. And we all had to give up a little bit of, of our position to get to the point where we could get that passed through the House of Representatives. And, and now we're working through the process in the Senate. We've got Idaho's uh, Senator Mike Crapo is negotiating with uh, Senator Bennett from Colorado. And so, again, you've got that bipartisan effort. And, and we're hopeful that we can find some sort of uh, compromise there to get a bill similar to the one in the House, uh, a bill through the Senate that is going to satisfy everybody's needs. But, you know, everybody's still going to have to give give up a little bit to, to find that point of compromise. And, and really, in our opinion, if you want a lasting fix and something that's going to have longevity, that's that's going to be what we have to how we have to do it and the way we have to do it is, is through that bipartisan effort and to get both Republicans and Democrats in a room and agreeing on terms and setting some of the differences aside and saying, okay, we've got to do what's right for, for agriculture in the country here and be able to move forward with some legislation that, that could be helpful for so many employers and, and so many employees that are just wanting the same opportunity you and I have. And that's to be in this great country and working and supporting their family here. So, Rick, if we don't see ag labor reform and a solution, and if there's not an increase in either foreign or domestic workforces, you mentioned consolidation. So, you know, this is already happening, and specifically in your part of the world it is. So if we don't see these solutions, is consolidation kind of going to start being the, um, the new norm, I guess? So it, lack of labor is going to be a, a catalyst in consolidation. Um, you know, I don't, it's not the single factor that's causing consolidation. So I'm not going to try and uh, pull the wool over anybody's eyes and say, if we get immigration reform done, you know, we'd, we'd uh, end the, the cons- consolidation we're seeing, but it's definitely a factor. As I go talk in dairy circles and, and as I'm out in the countryside talking with members, labor is their number one issue. Uh, you know, it's, it's not milk price. It's not feed price. As I talk with my dairymen and you ask them, Hey, what's, what's your top, top two issues. Labor is always the number one issue that they bring up just because for a number of years now, we've been trying to figure out how to get the work done with a short labor force. And that labor force just continues to get uh, tighter and tighter. And there's fewer available, uh, workers to, to, to come do the work. And I want to end on this note, Rick, kind of talking about the economic pressure that we could be seeing, you know, from consolidation or from an increase in, in pay to kind of attract workers. Can you just touch on, you know, the economic pressure that we could be seeing here in the future as well? Yes. So, so our dairymen for the last few years have continued to have to increase wages to the point that, again, we talked earlier that for our dairymen, you know, the $15 an hour mark that you look at a city like Seattle, where they're pr- very proud of themselves for having a $15 an hour minimum wage. That's, that, that's just standard in our industry anymore, just to be able to attract the workers. So even though we don't have this, you know, big press release and pat ourselves on the back for having a, a wage rate that Seattle would be proud of. 
we just go and get the job done. But what that does do is that compresses margins. So, you know, our dairymen, they were accustomed to for years, you know, having labor be about a $2 a hundred weight uh, cost in, in their total cost of production. And now they're seeing that push north of $2 and approaching $3. And so you're, you're having this increased cost with, without the ability to go and increase the, the price that they sell their milk for. You know, milk's a commodity, and so we're subject to you know being price takers and and not able to really have much say in in what the price of our our products are. You know, we're we're very much at the mercy of supply and demand economics with with a commodity product. Well, Rick, it's certainly been great to talk to you today and talk more about what's going on in the dairy industry. I certainly appreciate you taking the time out to chat. Uh, happy, happy to join y'all anytime. It's been a good conversation and I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks again there to Rick for coming on and chatting with us. I'm really loving our ag labor mini series. In fact, I'm doing some research on ag labor reform for grad school. So this is definitely a topic that's been weighing heavy in my mind. But Dawson, we're always talking to fantastic people in the industry, whether we're talking ag labor markets and of course our Tech Tuesday episodes that we do every week. So folks, you can tune in at agnewsdaily.com or wherever you get your podcast to listen along with us. With that, Dawson, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. Thank you.